0: The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome to you in the name of Jesus. It is wonderful to be with you in this place this morning. And I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank Alexis Hickson for that Excellent, excellent communion homily. And uh, yes, please. And you should cheer all the more loudly for her because this is her final Sunday with us here at the Springs. And uh, we, yes, we are very sad about it. She's been awesome. Uh, but I suspect that she is not quite as sad as we are because she's about to go do a semester in Florence. So thank you, Celeste, for causing us to covet this morning, Um, but also thank you for all that you have done. We've we've really enjoyed having her here at the Springs. And this is her last Sunday, and uh, next Sunday is our last Sunday in the Psalms, and that means that the following Sunday, August 12th, is our first Sunday in a brand new sermon series called Luke the Spirit-Powered Gospel. Uh, It's been a little while since we've been in a gospel together. Um, but we preached through John a few years back. I think we were in Mark before that, and so we are excited to get back into a gospel, and particularly the gospel of Luke. Ben and I are very excited for this series, and he's going to go ahead and kick that off on Sunday, August 12th, so you will definitely want to be here for that. And not only are we starting Luke in the fall, but we are going to go in the spring and move to its sequel in the book of Acts. So we'll be in Luke this fall, starting in a few weeks, and Acts in the spring. I hope you guys will stick around and be there for that. I think it's gonna be a wonderful study together. Let's go ahead and go to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we worship you, and we love you, and we give thanks for this brand new day. God, I give thanks for who you are, that you are true and good and beautiful, that you are light and in you there is no darkness. And God, we give thanks for every true and good and beautiful thing that we know comes from you. This morning we ask for your word to enlighten our hearts. I ask you for the gift of preaching And I ask that you would bless us with your presence as we seek you this morning in spirit and in truth. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Amen. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our harps For there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastate her. Happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. If there has ever been a psalm of disorientation, it's this one. And if you haven't read Psalm 137 before, or maybe if you haven't heard it in a while, you might be a bit shocked by that ending. Perhaps it makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. But this is the ending of Psalm 137. And it is a, a really beautiful Psalm actually. It, it begins with this lyrical movement of, of the harps on the trees and down by the waters of Babylon and yet we come to this monstrous ending. And it's unsettling. And uh, indeed, this is a favorite text of some uh, skeptics, unbelievers, atheists who would, who would want to heap scorn on Judaism or Christianity or the Bible. Um, in fact, I, I know an atheist who, who has said, you know, people should be ashamed to have the Bible on their coffee tables or their nightstands because of Psalm 137 verse 9. That is the kind of gut reaction this elicits at times. A few years ago, my sister was living in New York City uh, in a little apartment on the upper east side of Manhattan. And she was living alone. uh, And it wasn't expensive by New York standards, uh, but when you consider that it was probably the size of our new drum cage, (laughs) it was exorbitant. And the fact that she was living alone made that even worse. And it also was not fun to live alone a certain night when she was there just kind of chilling out and a mouse runs across the floor. And my sister being who she is, she hates rodents, she hates birds, uh, but she let out this awful scream, horrific, horrific hair curling scream. And right about the time that she's kind of getting down off the scream and she's thinking about letting the mouse just sublet the apartment without her, she realizes that not a single neighbor came to check on her. Not a single neighbor in this apartment complex came to knock on the door, or see what was wrong. She sounded like she might have been being murdered very easily. And no one ever bothered to see why she was screaming. And I think that's actually a good way for us to frame our conversation about Psalm 137 this morning. Texts like these in the Psalms are a bit like a scream. A scream is totally unpleasant. It is not a beautiful sound. It is horrifying. It is extreme. It could be called uncivilized or even barbaric. But the humane inclination when you hear a scream, is not to dismiss the screamer out of hand. It's not to dismiss them or, in my sister's case, completely ignore them. The humane inclination when you hear a scream is to see what might have caused it. The humane inclination is to what has caused this scream because passages like Psalm 137 have the shocking immediacy of a scream. They they startle us into feeling something of the desperation which has produced them. And it's this kind of desperation that I want to take some time with you this morning to look at in Psalm 137. So let's head back to the first stanza, verses one through four. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So the setting of this psalm is as... Many of our other texts have been before the Babylonian exile. Remember in 587 BC, the Babylonian empire came in, completely leveled Jerusalem, destroyed it, demolished the temple, and took most of the Jewish citizens, the ones they didn't kill, and put them in captivity in Babylon. And so here in Psalm 137, the psalmist is down by the rivers of Babylon This series of canals between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And he is remembering this overwhelming grief of exile. And this is perhaps actually one of the most important themes of the psalm, is memory. He says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. When they remembered their home that had been taken from them when they remembered the the awful chaos and destruction and suffering. And the captors twist the knife. The tormentors just put salt in the wound. They say, hey, sing us one of those Zion songs. Yeah, one of those happy, victorious songs of Zion. And the psalmist says, how could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Many of us have, I assume, songs in our life that are maybe a little bit too sad to return to. It might be a a breakup song or a melancholy kind of ballad. But sometimes it's not even a sad song in itself. It may be a happy, exciting song from a wonderful season of life that has now passed us by. It might be a song that scored your first romance that no longer exists. It might be a wonderful worship song from a golden age of life in the church. Or it might be the favorite pop song of a family member who has since passed away. But whatever it is, these songs, even if they are happy, are difficult to return to because they bring back that memory. That memory of of good times gone. That memory of freedom and innocence. That memory of home. And this is what the psalmist says. He is not just protesting his captors, saying, I'm not going to sing you one of those songs. It would be shameful. But he's saying, "I, I can't even go back to that memory. I can't sing a victorious song of Zion as I experience the shame and dejection of exile." And this theme of memory and song uh, continues to grow in the psalm, especially in the second stanza. Look at verses five and six. He says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, he's in the capital city of Babylon, the most powerful empire of the day and Babylon was a burgeoning city It was known for scientific achievements in astronomy it was known for the hanging gardens of Babylon one of the seven ancient wonders of the world but there's no joy in Zion for an exile there's no joy or excitement for a captive and so he says I I can't sing, I need to remember Jerusalem and if I don't, let my right hand wither. Let me not be able to pluck the strings of the harp. If I don't, let the tongue in my mouth stick to the roof so I can't sing because these songs are impossible in Zion. But I hope you've noticed there's there's a little bit of irony in Psalm 137. That the whole time he's talking about not being able to sing. He's talking about not being able to sing one of these Zion songs in Babylon. And yet the irony is, is that his protest has in a sense become its own song of Zion. It, It actually, Psalm 137 reflects some of these songs of Zion that we have. And in a sense, even as he has said, singing here is impossible, he has inadvertently brought us this desperate, white knuckled lament. This desperate, dejected psalm of disorientation. Uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar was an African American writer and poet who was born just a decade after the Emancipation Proclamation. And his parents were slaves in Kentucky, but at the turn of the century, he wrote a poem called Sympathy. And you may have actually heard a line or two from it. I want to share just the last two stanzas of this poem with you. He says, I know why the caged bird beats his wing till its blood is red on the cruel bars For he must fly back to his perch and cling when he fain would be on the bow a swing and a pain still throbs in the old, old scars and they pulse again with a keener sting. I know why he beats his wing. I know why the caged bird sings, ah me when his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beats his bars and he would be free, it is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven he flings. I know why the caged bird sings. Psalm 137 is inadvertently in the midst of the impossibility. It is a song, but it's not a carol of joy or glee. It can't be. It is a suffering prayer. It is a desperate plea flung upward to heaven, as Dunbar says. This is the song of the caged bird longing to be free, beating his wings bloody red against the bars. This imagery of the blood and the wings is kind of disturbing, but it still doesn't get us to the disturbing level of the end of this psalm, uh, which is where we find ourselves now. In the final stanza, he says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall. How they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. We finally see the theme of memory move all the way to the end of the psalm here, but this time it's not the psalmist trying to remember or swearing to remember. He's calling God to remember the injustices. And this comes into play in verse 8, actually, which I think has a a key point for us. In verse 8, you'll notice that he says, Happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. And then he immediately talks about the dashing of the infants on the rocks. Meaning, not only did Babylon come in and level Jerusalem, not only did they destroy Jerusalem, the holy temple of God but they came in and they slaughtered innocent Israelite children that what the psalmist is really calling for here even if it's in an atrocious form even if it's distorted is some semblance of justice meted out he's really calling for the punishment to fit the crime. He's calling for tit for tat, eye for eye. This is what he's calling for. He's, even as it is distorted, he longs for justice, for wrongs to be made right. And C.S. Lewis has a, wonderful little book on the Psalms called Reflections on the Psalms. And there's a chapter where he discusses the curses in the Psalms. This isn't the only verse quite like it in the Psalms. There are more. And what he says is that to be enraged by evil is better than feeling nothing. And he he tells this story to illustrate it about this group of british soldiers at the beginning of world war two that he was able to meet he was in this compartment with these british soldiers and he hears them talking and and what he overhears leads him to believe that these soldiers do not believe the atrocities they're hearing about the nazis Everything that's being reported about Germany, about the Nazi regime, they believe to be propaganda from their government. So these British soldiers believe that their government is telling lies about the Nazis in order to get them out onto the battlefield, in order to uh, spur them on to kill more Germans. And Lewis, the most startling thing, he says, is that they seem totally fine with this they believe that their government is actually lying to them in order to get them to go shed more blood. And they take it as a matter of course. They take it as the most normal thing. And what he says is that even the most violent of the psalmists is in a more hopeful state than these young men. That to see... Atrocious evil, horrendous wrong, and terrible pain and lies being done, and to not feel anything, to to totally accept it, to not do or think or act in any way, is in a much more morally suspect state than our psalmist. To not feel anything, to perceive this diabolical evil, and yet to let it be, is an awful place to be. But this violent, naked appeal for retribution is here in the psalm. There's no getting around it. It's here, and I'll tell you why I think it's important that it's here. Because in this psalm, we see God making space for the most utterly vile of the human soul. In this psalm, God has opened up a sacred space for someone to be completely, brutally honest in their lament, in their disorientation. That honesty as much as the distortion is awful, that honesty is a sacred, important thing. Because we may not have had exactly this thought, 25 years removed from a more warrior type of culture that our psalmist has had. But we've had thoughts of vengeance. We've had thoughts of revenge. We've had thoughts and feelings and perhaps even inclinations or even actions of violence. And what Psalms 137 tells us, what the Psalms of disorientation and lament tell us, is that we can bring these honestly before God. Because those thoughts and emotions and feelings are bound to go somewhere, so God says, don't let them erupt into the society around you, bring them to me. Bring them before me in a song, in worship no less. And in that way, you might begin to take the very first step towards healing. In your brutal honesty, you might begin to take the very first step towards living in peace. Because our psalmist doesn't seem to find any other recourse. This, to him, seems to be the only way to proceed, to find justice. How else... Could the books of history be balanced? How else could honor be restored? How else could atonement be made for the innocent blood that has been shed than for more innocent blood to be shed? But between the psalmist and our day stands an image in Jerusalem, a memory stands the image of the cross and in Jesus Christ the very worst the very darkest of the human soul has been put on display and been absorbed by him Jesus on the cross is the answer to how else Jesus on the cross is the way that the books of history are balanced Jesus on the cross, enduring the most shameful death and rejection, is the way that honor is restored. Jesus on the cross is the way that atonement is made, that a child, the Son of God, has been battered, has been dashed against the rocks by violent human hands in order to begin the first step towards healing, peace, salvation. Between the psalmist and us stands the cross. And if you have malice or evil or revenge or violence in your heart, in your life, first of all, welcome to being a broken, fallen, sinful human being. Secondly, that has been taken care of in Jesus Christ. And God's intention is for you to be able to bring that before Him and lay it as at His feet and let go. And to begin to live a life of peace, of healing, of salvation. If you need to bring some of that malice, evil, sin before God this morning we want to be a place where you can talk about that we want to be a group of people where you can be honest about that and where you can bring that before the Lord of heaven and earth who has taken care of it and has defeated sin and death in the cross and the resurrection church let's stand and proclaim his mighty name together in song Between our psalmist and us God has put the cross and he has changed our imagination so we have new options new possibilities we can now imagine not just loving our neighbor but loving our enemy we can now imagine not repaying evil for evil blow for blow but evil with good turning the other cheek and we can imagine a city inhabited not by Babylonians and Judeans but inhabited by one new humanity in Jesus Christ that's the kind of city we are living towards that's the kind of city we're trying to embody here at the spring so I want to thank you again for being with us this morning our benediction today is may the light of Christ be shed upon the darkness in your soul that you may live in his grace and peace. Go in that peace, church.